This podcast is based off only true stories and real events. No names, places, or locations have been changed. This is where medical science is not only not settled, but rather unsettling, because sometimes, only in retrospect, can we see that we are science experiments. For centuries now, humans have been at war with microbes, despite having an incomplete understanding of the human body and how microbes actually contribute to human health. Amidst our fascination with avoiding microbes, there is one medical discovery that magnified our fear of viruses and bacteria in particular, and ironically brought them closer to us, even inside of us. That is the syringe. And let me put that another way. We are actually taking that thing that we are so afraid of and that we want to avoid at all costs. And now we have not only devised a way to inject it, but also rebrand and remarket it. Like this is the only solution, that this is a safer alternative. And yet we don't really question that, even though we know all medication has risks. So I'm going to break it all down. How did this happen? How did we even agree that it was okay or healthy to inject foreign substances? And that's what this podcast is about. At some base human level, doesn't it feel wrong to insert a long, sharp piece of metal into our body and inject a foreign substance into it? Now imagine that syringe and needle was used on hundreds of people before you and contained animal and human blood products, bacteria, viruses, as well as cancer-causing compounds. Sounds crazy, right? While the syringe may be a medical achievement in some contexts, there's one big problem we can't pretend didn't happen because we know that disposable syringes were not invented until 1954. They were not mass produced until 1961 and not in widespread use until the mid 1960s. So that means from its invention in 1844 to the mid 1960s, every single syringe and needle was reused over and over again. Let that really sink in because even though it's common knowledge in the medical community, it's not something that they talk about. It's not something that we've ever heard before, right? Instead, we hear the opposite, that you're not supposed to share needles. But it was once completely standard protocol by default. And sadly, in many parts of the world, it's still standard protocol. This largely unrecognized centuries-long medical mistake changes so many things. It shatters our sugar-coated understanding of history. It questions our perceived victimhood with regard to some very notorious outbreaks. And it shines a bright light on the very 20th century mortality statistics that we use as the basis to mandate our current vaccine schedule. We must reconcile and deal with the fact that both the sick and healthy shared the same invasive medical devices with substandard sterilization without gloves, easily transmitting pathogens by the very means that was meant as protection. Some of the immunization drives, they just used an open flame to sterilize the needles between children. We must admit the deepest, darkest secrets of history. For many people, we caused disease. We created this problem. 
And as if that isn't bad, syringe reuse is still happening. According to a report by the World Health Organization back in 2000, it was estimated that 40% of the total 16 billion annual injections in the world are given with reused equipment, and in developing nations, 70% of injections are given with reused syringes and needles. Globally, unsafe injections account for 30% of new hepatitis B infections, 41% of hepatitis C infections, and 9% of new HIV and AIDS infections. Unsafe injections cause 1.3 million early deaths every year. These are not from illicit drug use. These are all medical health care setting injections given by a doctor or nurse. In the United States, a 2017 survey published in the American Journal of Infection Control found that 12% of physicians and 2% of nurses indicated reuse of syringes for more than one patient occurs in their workplace. According to that survey, 6% of U.S. healthcare providers, quote, sometimes or always, quote, use a single-dose, single-use vial for more than one patient. Since 2001, more than 150,000 patients nationwide have been victims of unsafe injection practices. Two-thirds of those risky shots were administered in just the past four years, according to data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In 2008, a Las Vegas health clinic exposed 40,000 patients to hepatitis B and C and HIV through reusing syringes and vials of medication over a four-year period. In 2012, 8,000 letters were sent to patients of a former Colorado oral surgeon who was found to have reused syringes and needles on patients receiving intravenous medication over a 12-year period. In 2013, thousands of patients were notified and at least 60 patients tested positive for hepatitis B or HIV after an Oklahoma dentist was found to be reusing needles and using rusty equipment on his patients. In 2019, 900 children tested positive for HIV in Pakistan linked to a pediatrician who reused syringes and IV drips. Syringe reuse still happens and it is still an issue, a global issue. So how did humans stumble into the syringe anyways? The syringe, the word, comes from the Greek word syrinx, sorry I'm butchering that, meaning tube which dates back to the first century AD. These early instruments required the skin to be cut first, and their primary function was to drain fluid, pus, or foreign bodies from cavities and abscesses. The idea for the hollow needle and syringe didn't come until 1844 and was inspired by the stinger of a bee. In nature, stingers and fangs of poisonous insects and animals are the most natural biological prototype for a syringe and needle. Biologically, the mode of delivering venom by injection into prey or a larger enemy allows the poison quick access to the central nervous system to render the victims paralyzed and eventually dead. It's a very smart adaptation for an otherwise unassuming and small creature. I imagine that observing insects and animals with fangs or stingers or being bitten is probably what compelled early humans to make a poison needle as a weapon in the form of a blowpipe and poison dipped arrows, which was used by practically every indigenous and ancient culture for thousands of years. 
Arrows or darts made from wood or reeds were dipped in poisons, which were nerve agents and derived from plants or animals, and blown through a pipe to pierce the skin of enemies. The poison quickly spreads to the central nervous system, causing the aforementioned paralysis and death. This early weapon was inspired by nature and then later adapted for medical use. Modern day Botox injections, which contains botulism neurotoxin type A, have also been shown to reach the central nervous system. It's good to remember that anything can be a poison. The old saying is the dose makes the poison, but I will add that each recipient is unique and what may not be poisonous for one person, for example, peanuts or latex, may be poisonous for another person. Technically speaking, a poison is defined as, quote, a substance that is capable of causing the illness or death of a living organism when introduced or absorbed. Because each person's constitution is so individual, truly a poison can be anything and it could be any dose. Coincidentally, the word virus comes from Latin, virus, referring to poison and other nauseous liquids. According to Oxford Dictionary, late Middle English denoting the venom of a snake. The earlier medical sense superseded by the current use as a result of improved scientific understanding was a substance produced in the body as a result of disease, especially one capable of infecting others. What's interesting is we've kind of come full circle there because some people do believe that viruses are like exosomes and are produced in the body. It would take all the way until the mid-1800s before we get to the first modern syringe. In 1844, Irish physician and surgeon Francis Rind created the first hollow needle for subcutaneous injection of morphine to treat a female patient who had suffered for years with severe pain in her face due to neuralgia, which is damaged nerves. When drinking morphine didn't kill the pain because of our stomach acids, Rand decided that the more direct route of injecting the morphine under her skin closer to the damaged nerves might work. And he was right. Pain relief was achieved, and this new technique was quickly and widely accepted. And it was even credited as the greatest boon to medicine since the discovery of chloroform. So let's recap that. Ingesting the medication didn't work as well as injecting it because the stomach has natural defenses and ways of protecting the body from toxins. The body is so cool. A few years later, in 1853, Scottish physician Alexander Wood and French surgeon Charles Gabriel Pravaz added to the design to make the first true hypodermic syringe. Taking as his model the, quote, sting of the bee, end quote, Wood constructed a small glass syringe to which was attached a fine perforated needle point for the injection of morphine and preparations of opium. He actually wrote in his diaries that he was inspired by the singer of a bee. At the turn of the 20th century, syringes were still artisan-made, handcrafted items fashioned from metal and glass, which allowed the doctor to measure the liquid more accurately and the piston may have been made from wax linen tape or asbestos wound onto a reel to obtain a watertight seal. Yes, the same asbestos that causes cancer. What I found interesting in doing the research on this was when syringes were not made out of glass, they were made out of metal, 
you had no idea how much medicine the person was getting, so that would have not been an interesting time to get an injection. Early syringes were expensive and meant to be durable and last a lifetime. Doctors might only have one syringe for all his or her patients. They were a very convincing addition to other precision medical equipment, including thermometers and the stethoscopes that helped convince patients that the doctor knew what he was doing. Even today, a lot of patients feel taken care of when they get an injection. In 1900, syringes cost $50 per unit. And by 1920, still only about 100,000 syringes were being made each year in the entire world. And for reference, 4.7 million US men and women served in World War I, and each one of them received multiple injections, including but not limited to vaccine injections, shots of painkillers, and antibiotics. So let me paint that picture for you a little bit. We had, in 1920, only 100,000 syringes were being made each year for the entire world. And World War I took place during the years 1917 and 1918. Uh, some of the routine vaccinations for that would have been smallpox, live, and typhoid whole cell, as well as the immunoglobulin or antitoxin therapies, therapeutic tetanus antitoxin, diphtheria antitoxin, and there was also an experimental meningococcal vaccine given to the soldiers at Fort Riley in Kansas, which we will talk about later. But that is where the Spanish flu pandemic began. It's also important to remember that people didn't just get one injection for each of these vaccines, but they would have gotten two to three doses of each of these vaccines. No matter how you slice it, that was a lot of sharing needles between a lot of people. So if you're waiting for me to get to the first disposable syringe, you're gonna have to wait until the mid 1950s. And the only reason that they made disposable was because they wanted to do a very large scale vaccine trial. And that is how we arrive at Jonas Salk and his polio vaccine. In 1952 and 1953, Jonas Salk tested his polio vaccine on children at the DT Watson home for crippled children and residents of the Polk State Home. That was an institution. And at this time, he still used a reusable glass syringe and he even did the injections himself. The next year in 1954, Jonas Salk was ready to test his vaccine on American school children. And he wanted to test it on a lot of children at once. And so he needed a large number of syringes and needles to be made at once and dispensed all over the country. This large-scale polio vaccine trial was going to be using the double-blind method, where some children get the vaccine and others just get saline. A total of 623,972 school children took part in this large-scale trial. This appears to be the impetus to make what was considered the first disposable syringe, although this syringe was still made of glass and still reused between children. Becton Dickinson delivered, quote, thousands of 5cc syringes and several million one-inch needles to 215 test sites across the nation. So for a trial of 600,000 children, the syringe manufacturer delivered thousands to various test sites. It would take decades for the problems to unfold completely, 
Baby boomers, people born from 1940s to 1965, have a higher rate of hepatitis C than other generations. And it was narrowed down to nosocomial transmission, meaning transmission in a healthcare setting caused by syringe reuse. There were of course some more immediate effects of these early vaccine trials. For example, the following year in 1955, once the polio vaccine was deemed safe and successful, it was released to the public. In April 1955, 200,000 children in five Western and Midwestern states received a polio vaccine with a live virus, a virus that was not properly inactivated. This resulted in 40,000 cases of polio, leaving 200 children with varying degrees of paralysis and killing 10. This is known as the Cutter Incident. Believe it or not, we still have not gotten to the plastic disposable syringe. It finally became available in the early 1960s. Plastic disposable syringes were mass produced beginning in 1961. It would be several more years before the truly disposables would be in widespread use. An insulin patient describes the switch to disposable syringes in the 1960s as a very slow process. Here is some of his account. My father started giving me shots of insulin in 1945 when I was six. When the needles were dull, he sharpened them with a wet rock. We had our own well, and there were lime deposits from the rocks underground. The needles would be coated with these deposits after they were boiled, and they would occasionally become clogged. The opening in the needles was wide enough that we could push a very small wire through and unclog them. When the needles and glass syringe were being sterilized in boiling water on top of our kitchen stove, we would sometimes forget about them and all the water would evaporate. Then there was a loud pop and pieces of glass would fly all over our kitchen. I don't think we ever got hurt by these flying pieces of glass, but it was a potential danger. Fortunately, we always kept a spare syringe on hand. What a contrast when we compared the 1940s and the present day. I used the 3 fourth inch needle during my early years. My doctor had my father inject into my leg or arm muscles at a 90 degree angle. I was skin and bones when diagnosed, so the injections were very painful. It was not necessary to push the entire 3 fourth inch needle into my muscle, but most of the needle was necessary to get the needed absorption. Injecting into the muscle caused the animal insulin to be absorbed more quickly. The insulin from pigs and cows was not as fast as the fast-acting insulins we have today. In 1955, there was concern about the infection caused by the use of glass syringes, and the world's first plastic disposable syringe called the Monoject was introduced. Unfortunately, doctors thought it was safer to reuse glass syringes after sterilizing them. In 1956, the plastic disposable syringe we use today was designed. Becton Dickinson did extensive development, trials, and tests, and in 1961 introduced its first plastic disposable syringe, the BD PlastiPak. I was still using glass syringes and long needles from 1945 until the 1960s, when disposable needles and plastic syringes became available. There are so many things about my diabetes past that I took for granted back then. I tell recently diagnosed diabetics about my past and some of them look at me in horror and disbelief. So there are a lot of problems associated with syringe reuse. 
For example, the jagged rough edge easily traps bacteria and viral microorganisms. Needles required resharpening often. Impossible to clean and sterilize all parts adequately. They caused infections leading to cellulitis, abscesses, erysipelas, sepsis. They transmitted infectious diseases like hepatitis B and C, smallpox, polio, measles, influenza, syphilis, tetanus, pneumococcus, MRSA, and HIV AIDS. And that's just to name a few. So you might be thinking, okay, but they sterilize these needles and syringes between people, right? Well, no, they didn't, not necessarily. The oldest method of sterilization consisted of holding a flame to surgical instruments. Sterilization of boiling water was first introduced in 1881. Remember, our syringe came into use 1844. They wouldn't know it at the time, but boiling does not kill 100% of microorganisms. Steam sterilization and autoclaves came out in the late 1880s, but as with everything, there is a lag before inventions become widely available and affordable. Shockingly, we do have footage of old vaccine campaigns showing that children are being vaccinated with syringes that are only being sterilized with an open flame, and nobody was wearing disposable gloves. Speaking of disposable gloves, they didn't become standard protocol until the 1990s. The very first rubber glove was invented in 1889 by Dr. William Halsted, specifically for his scab nurse, who he would eventually marry, whose hands broke out in dermatitis from all the strong chemical disinfectants used during surgery, like mercuric chloride and carbolic acid. After that, more surgeons and assistants began to wear them, but mostly just to protect their own hands from the harsh chemicals. And this was only during surgery. The first disposable latex gloves were manufactured in 1964, but it would take several more decades before medical grade latex gloves would show up. Gloves that were actually FDA regulated to prevent infectious microorganisms from spreading through the glove did not appear until the 1990s. So I'm gonna read you a little section from the history of disease book that I have. Humans have been fighting the diseases of civilization since they began congregating in large numbers. There is written and pictorial evidence of this from Egypt to Mesopotamia around 1000 BC India, about 750 BC, Greece of the 6th century BC, and China around 100 BC. Yet, as the Canadian physician and historian William Osler commented, civilization is but a filmy fringe on the history of man. By this he meant that the past hour, or five, millennia represent a tiny fraction of 1% of the time since human ancestors first appeared on Earth. There is, of course, no recorded history of the ailments of people before the emergence of civilizations, and thus before the diseases that they spawned. But we can make informed guesses about them from skeletons and other archaeological remains. For at least 4.5 million years, human ancestors, hominids, 
were hunters and gatherers. They lived in scattered groups of perhaps 50 to 100 individuals. The low numbers and low densities of the population reduced the incidence of viral and bacterial infection so that people were not troubled by contagious diseases such as smallpox or measles, whose pathogens require large and dense populations for survival. Moreover, the lifestyle of hunter-gatherers spared them from other illnesses. They were restless folk, often on the move, and thus not tied to a neighborhood long enough to pollute water sources with human wastes that transmit disease, nor to pile up refuse that attracts disease-carrying insects. Finally, hunter-gatherers had no domesticated animals. Tamed animals helped to create civilizations with their meat, hide, milk, eggs, and bones, but also transmitted many diseases. Our hunting, fishing, and gathering ancestors did not escape diseases altogether, but they were less exposed to them than our modern humans. There were two principal sources of disease in those far-off times. One of them, wild animals, infections, zoonoses, were acquired by eating or just being in contact with animals. The second threat of disease came from organisms that were present in hominid ancestors and continue to evolve with humans. In this second category were numerous worms, lice, and bacteria such as Salmonella and Treponema, the agent of yaws and syphilis, trichinosis, sleeping sickness, tularemia, and a couple of other things. Encounters with these infections would have been mostly incidental and individual and would seldom, if ever, have affected many members of a group, especially in view of the mobility of hunter-gatherers and their tendency to abandon areas when food became short. Such mobility also put hunter-gatherers within reach of a wide range of wild plant and animal food that presumably helped establish the kinds and quantities of the nutrients that humans need today. Studies of the few remaining hunter-gatherers of present times point to the consumption of a truly astounding variety of foodstuffs. If such variety was characteristic of hunter-gatherer diets of the past, it may partly explain anomalies of modern humans, such as the ability to develop scurvy if food contains insufficient vitamin C. Humans and only a few other animals cannot synthesize their own ascorbic acid. Because of the importance of vitamin C to metabolic processes, it seems unlikely that an ability to synthesize it would have been lost in evolution unless it had been rendered superfluous, unnecessary because ascorbic acid had been well supplied by the diet over hundreds of thousands of years. So I felt it was kind of important to read that because I think that many people have a certain image of human health throughout history that for thousands of years, humans had really ill health and short lifespans that only improved with the advent of modern medicine, after which they experienced this better and improving health and longer lifespans. And in this view, modern medicine is credited as the hero. However, humans have been living into their 70s and 80s and even 90s for thousands of years. And in light of medical error being the third leading cause of death nationwide, and that 70,000 Americans die annually from drug overdose, 63% of them are doctor-prescribed drugs, and the other two leading causes of death, cancer and heart disease, are largely environmentally caused, diet caused, I'm going to have to disagree with you. 
But it's interesting to note two things. Human civilization created the conditions for disease and doctors were mistrusted even back then. Infectious diseases did not become a plague to humans until humans settled down into large civilizations and began farming. And our diet became hollowed out of all nutrients. The intersection of larger civilizations as opposed to smaller hunter-gatherer groups, the new habit of eating single crops as opposed to a variety of foraged nutrient-dense foods, and the piling up of human waste and refuse created the perfect storm for diseases to breed and take hold. Back when doctors were pushing concoctions of mercurous chloride and opium, bloodletting and purging and practicing what was called heroic medicine that always ended in a patient dying anyways, Joseph Addison wrote in The Spectator in 1711, if we look into the profession of the physic, we shall find the most formidable body of men. The sight of them is enough to make a man serious, for we may lay it down as a maxim that when a nation abounds in physicians, it grows thin of people. It's true. Life was dire in the 18th and 19th centuries, but it wasn't because of the lack of vaccines. It was from a lack of toilets, before sewage systems, before clean running water. People's waste was thrown literally out the window into the streets and ended up in their only source of drinking water. Air quality was actually worse in the 19th century than it is today in many big cities. Our mortality rate was much higher for many reasons, including, but not limited to, malnutrition, extreme overcrowding, and lack of sanitation. Thus, the desire and promise of a quick cure became a very attractive proposition. Together with the mechanism to simply inject that cure, fulfilled a fantasy for quick health and in turn created a market for a long list of injectable serums, antitoxins, immunoglobulins, and vaccines. With no regulatory oversight, no labeling requirements, no safety testing, no ingredients that were off limits, this was a recipe for disaster. I really think that 19th and 20th century medicine needs to be its own episode, but I have a little glimpse for you right here. Common medicines in the 19th century contained what we would today consider to be completely toxic poisons. Mercury, lead, arsenic, strychnine, antimony, cocaine, opium, heroin, formalin, formaldehyde. It's kind of crazy that some of those were in vaccines even recently. Scratch that, are still in vaccines today. Likened to the Wild West, pharmacists did not need any specific formal training to own a pharmacy or to make their own medications and serums. The corner pharmacist assumed the role of healthcare provider for the majority of people who could not afford to see doctors. Pharmacist Henry K. Mulford, who incidentally did graduate from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in 1887, launched his own line of pharmaceuticals, including introducing the diphtheria antitoxin in 1895, followed by tetanus antitoxin and a smallpox vaccine. In 1896, a well-known Berlin pathologist's 18-month-old son, Ernst Langerhans, 
died shortly after being injected with a prophylactic dose of anti-diphtheria serum. And his father, Robert Langerhans, published an obituary notice stating that his son had been poisoned by Bering's anti-diphtheria serum. The nature of Ernst Langerhans' death, combined with the fact that he came from a prominent family of physicians, made the event a public scandal. The official cause of death, following the investigations into the case, was proclaimed to be an accident. But it wouldn't be the last time that a child would die shortly after an injection. In 1901, nine children died from tetanus after being vaccinated at school with the Mulford smallpox vaccine, which may have been contaminated by the bacteria. And then again, in another part of the nation in 1901, 13 children died after being injected with diphtheria antitoxin that was contaminated also with tetanus. About this disaster, as was his routine, he injected diphtheria antitoxin into the child and, as a preventative, her two younger siblings and concluded that she would soon be entirely well. But four days later, he was called back to the baker's home to a terrifying discovery. He said, There I found that the little girl was suffering from tetanus. I could do nothing for her. The poison was injected so thoroughly into her system that she was beyond medical aid. Bessie died of tetanus the following day, as did her two siblings within the week. So began one of the worst safety disasters in the history of American public health, in which, by the time it was over, some 13 children had died of tetanus from contaminated antisera. By 1918, there was a serum or antitoxin for just about everything. These products were made by immunizing horses against virulent viruses and bacteria and then extracting the serum or liquid part of their blood which contains antibodies. This then would be combined with preservatives like phenol or cresol derived from toluene, possible human carcinogen, and then filled into ampules, syringes, or cylinders. An old description of antitoxins reads as follows. Antitoxins are relatively simple and relatively stable, as compared with some of the other bodies taking part in the reactions of immunity. In some cases, eruptions occur after injection of antitoxin, rarely swelling and pain in the joints. In other cases, more severe symptoms have been observed and in a few instances, sudden death has occurred. These conditions are due not to the antitoxin, but to the horse serum in which it is contained. This would have been written before we understood how dangerous injecting foreign proteins were. I did tragically find a 1917 case study of a seven-year-old boy who died 20 minutes after an administration of a prophylactic dose of diphtheria antitoxin. I'll go ahead and read you a couple paragraphs. This is from the California State Journal of Medicine, May 1917. Death due to status lymphaticus following an injection of diphtheria. Status lymphaticus is a whole nother can of worms, but that's another episode. On January 3rd, 1917, the San Francisco Department of Health was requested by the family physician of X to administer a prophylactic dose of diphtheria antitoxin to Thomas X, age seven years who had been in contact with his sister, who was at the time ill with diphtheria and who had been removed to the city's isolation hospital. 
To comply with this request, Sanitary Inspector Dr. C of the Board of Health proceeded to the family residence of X, found Thomas to all appearances a normal healthy child, and with the assistance of the mother, the inspector cleansed with warm water and soap the right scapular region of the boy's back, then painted the site of the injection with tincture of iodine and injected subcutaneously 1,000 units of diphtheria antitoxin of a standard brand, the time of its potency guaranteed to November 1917. The sanitary inspector left the house some 10 minutes after the injection. At the time of his leaving, there were no symptoms of collapse. The child complained of pain at the site of the injection, and 10 minutes later, he was seized with violent cramps, had great difficulty of breathing, and passed off in what the mother called a severe convulsion. The diagnosis of his was status lymphaticus, but we know today that that is not a legitimate condition. But one paragraph that I find sad or interesting is... It is interesting to note that on the day previous, the sister of this boy, who was the active case, had received intravenously 20,000 units of the same antitoxin, and on the following day, in the same manner, an additional dose of 10,000 units and made a complete recovery. This unfortunate case has not deterred the department's use of antitoxin either as a curative or prophylactic measure, but it has brought its lesson, which may be of value to other health departments, not in the prevention of death in such cases, but the avoidance of criticism. I will talk about Status Lymphaticus in its own episode. It was a completely manufactured diagnosis, and in this case, they're using it to shield criticism or avoid criticism for a vaccine-induced death, and we have that today too. Just to give you an idea of how many injectable medications were on the market in 1918, which is the same year that the Spanish flu took hold of the world, from an old edition of New and Non-Official Remedies 1918, these are just some of the listed serums and antitoxins on the market. Diphtheria, tetanus, anti-anthrax serum, anti-dysenteric serum, anti-gonococcus serum, anti-meningococcus serum, anti-pneumococcus, anti-streptococcus, and also antigen-containing products, which we know of as vaccines, including vaccinum, which is smallpox, anti-arabic vaccine, tuberculins, acne bacillus, cholera, colon bacillus, diphtheria bacillus vaccine, Friedlander bacillus vaccine, gonococcus vaccine, meningococcus vaccine, pertussis bacillus, plague bacillus, pneumococcus, another thing I'm not going to try to pronounce, staphylococcus vaccine, streptococcus vaccine, typhoid vaccine, by all the major pharmaceutical players of the time, including Ladera Laboratories, Park Davis and Company, ER Squibb and Sons, Abbott Laboratories, and Greeley Laboratories. You get the idea. There was a lot on the market. There was a lot that a pharmacist could give you. It didn't mean that everybody can afford all of these products, and they definitely didn't have any kind of immunization programs to vaccinate a large majority of the population, except for very select groups like the military. And also children were really only recommended the smallpox vaccine still at this time. Speaking of children, that's where we're going next. 
There might not be anything more unsettling than the idea of giving a therapeutic to a child that may cause them more harm than good. I understand the urge to protect a child from a dreadful disease, but it must be weighed cautiously against the very real possibility of causing disease, causing harm, via the very means of prevention. Throughout the last century, infants have been given a battery of injections beginning just minutes from birth. It's important to remember that disposable syringes were not in widespread use until the 1960s. So every injection, and I mean every injection, given before then was given with a reusable syringe and needle that was used countless times. Sadly, it would take decades, even a century, before we would understand how dangerous this was. In the early to mid 1800s, widespread smallpox vaccination became mandatory in many parts of the world. Most countries passed compulsory vaccination laws requiring infants to be vaccinated as young as three months of age or parents would be fined. From a very old baby care book, it says, every child must be vaccinated within three months of its birth by a qualified medical practitioner or by the public vaccinator. Either of them may give a certificate if at this time the child is not in a fit state to be vaccinated, postponing the vaccination for two months, such certificate to be renewable if necessary. Neglecting to have a child vaccinated, failing to produce a vaccinated child for inspection when required, preventing any public vaccinator from taking limp from any child, or failing to transmit medical certificate to the vaccination officer, renders a parent or guardian liable to a penalty not exceeding 20 shillings. Early smallpox vaccines were not injections, but were scraped, pus-filled scabs placed on the opening in the arm that was made with a lancet. Once smallpox vaccination utilized actual syringes, the vaccines were derived from calf or horse lymph. If calf lymph was not available, human lymph was still used via arm-to-arm -arm transmission. Later, vaccinia virus became used in smallpox vaccines. Inherently a dangerous procedure, vaccine recipients often contracted syphilis, tetanus, tuberculosis, measles, erysipelas, or came down with cow or horsepox, or even smallpox. In one old episode at Rivalta, Italy, for example, 63 children were vaccinated with material taken from the vaccinal pustule of an apparently healthy infant who had an inapparent syphilis infection. 44 of the vaccinated infants developed overt syphilis. Several died of it, and some infected their mothers and nurses. Infants in foundling hospitals and orphanages, I think, got the worst of it, though. They were vaccinated at birth and given routine immunoglobulins and serums, tested for experimental vaccine trials, as well as vaccinated with limp from each other's arms every single year. Children who were in foundling hospitals, despite having access to what was considered expert medical care, had a higher mortality rate than children outside of the orphanage and higher incidence of neurological and developmental disorders. In the 1940s, Austrian psychoanalyst René Spitz observed over many months infants in a Latin foundling and was surprised that despite superb medical attention, including hygiene and impeccable precautions against contagion, René Spitz wrote, 
The children showed from the third month on extreme susceptibility to infection and illness of any kind. There was hardly a child in whose case history we did not find reference to otitis media or morbili or varicella or eczema or intestinal disease of one kind or another. No figures could be elicited on general mortality, but during my stay, an epidemic of measles swept the institution with staggeringly high mortality figures, notwithstanding liberal administration of convalescent serum and globulins, as well as excellent hygienic conditions. Of a total of 88 children up to the age of two and a half, 23 died. In the younger group, six died, and that was approximately 13%. In the older group, 17 died, and that was close to 40%. The significance of these figures becomes apparent when we realize that the mortality from measles during the first year of life in the community in question, outside the institution, was less than a half a percent. So inside the orphanage, 40% of these infants over the age of one had died from measles. When outside the orphanage, the mortality rate should have only been a half a percent. Another thing I found really disturbing about this research paper by Spitz titled Hospitalism. For the infants in the foundling who survived to two and three years old, they had, quote, severe developmental retardation, were sickly and more prone to infections, nonverbal, couldn't walk, were incontinent, screamed, non-engaging and suffered from, quote, bizarre stereotyped motor patterns distinctly reminiscent of the stereotypy in catatonic motility. It sounds like Renee Spitz is describing what we would today call autism or severe autism. Leo Kanner, also an Austrian psychiatrist, had just coined autism in 1943 and proposed the cause of autism to be refrigerator mothers. While parental affection and stability clearly plays a significant role in infant development, could any of these symptoms also be related to the, quote, liberal administration of convalescent serum and globulins with reused needles and syringes during these very early periods of development? Today, we know that infant immune activation is a known trigger for autism. Newborn immune system activation has long-term negative impacts on brain function, including symptoms commonly associated with autism spectrum disorder and other developmental conditions. Brian S. Hooker's recently published study, Analysis of Health Outcomes in Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Children, developmental delays, asthma, ear infections, and gastrointestinal disorders found that fully vaccinated children had twice the rate of developmental delays than fully unvaccinated children. There's one thing that started happening more and more in the 20th century that the world had never really seen before, and that is crib death. Towards the end of the 19th century, sudden death was occasionally observed in association with anesthesia. And this was called status thymico-lymphaticus, and they believed that sudden death was caused by an abnormally large thymus, which they then decided the treatment would be radiation for healthy infants, and that is another episode. 
But with the introduction of so many injections in early life in the early 20th century, the sudden deaths of infants would soon be observed with greater frequency and for many years termed cot death or crib death. It was a seemingly new condition and it sparked the attention and curiosity of many pathologists in the mid-century as they were the first to encounter the problem. An early sudden death account from 1929 occurred in a female infant who began daily insulin injections a week or so before her death. The case study reads as follows. A female infant born on November 13, 1927, was admitted to Burnside Infant Welfare Home, Aberdeen, on December 1st, weighing six pounds, nine ounces. She was put on the routine feed for infants of her age, namely lactic acid milk sweetened with dextremaltose, but did not gain weight satisfactorily. Little could be made out clinically, except that after a few weeks, a pustular eruption developed on the chin. This cleared up fairly readily with a cold tar and zinc paste. Progress, however, remained unsatisfactory, the gain being only 26 ounces in 15 weeks. At this point, one unit of insulin daily was given subcutaneously, followed by a drachm of glucose by the mouth, a method of treatment which has given some happy results in our hands. In the first week of this treatment, the child gained 11 ounces, and then in the next, 3 ounces, and in every way appeared to be much improved. At 2.20 a.m. on March 25th, she was found in her cot just dying. During the week prior to death, the temperature taken morning and evening varied between 97 and 98 degrees. The 10 p.m. feed on March 24th was finished as usual. At 1.45 a.m. on March 25th, her napkins were changed and there was no suspicion that anything was amiss. The last dose of insulin was given at 3 p.m. the previous day, nearly 12 hours before death. At the post-mortem examination, the lower lobes of both lungs were found to be solid and in the red hepatization stage of lobar pneumonia, microscopical sections showing the alveoli to be filled with red cells and leukocytes. A pure culture of pneumococci was grown from the affected lung substance, and the upper lobes were found scattered patches of bronchopneumonia. The only other abnormality was a large thymus, which we would later find out was actually not large. It was completely normal. Dr. Jacob Byrne and his wife, pathologist Irene Garrow, documented and studied the increasing cases of sudden death in the mid-century. They co-authored the 1946 paper, Fatal Anaphylactic Shock, Occurrence and Identical Twins Following Second Injection of Diphtheria Toxoid and Pertussis Antigen. The case study goes on to describe the twins, 10-month-old identical boys. The family physician stated that nothing untoward was noticed immediately after the injections, except that one twin bled slightly from the site, necessitating the application of an additional cotton pledget. The parents stated that following the first injections one month before from another ampule of the same product, DM vomited, had a temperature of 101 degrees Fahrenheit, and cried considerably. One half grain of acetylsalicylic acid, which is aspirin, was given, and by evening he was apparently well. GM remained symptom-free after the first injection. After the second immunizing injections, both infants cried considerably on reaching home. They vomited and consumed excessive amounts of water, each taking about two full bottles. They then fell asleep and when next noticed by their parents, appeared lifeless. 
their position in the cribs remained unchanged and they could be aroused only by loud noises. DM had a staring expression. His temperature was 99 degrees Fahrenheit. At 11.30 p.m., when his diaper was changed, he was found to be ice cold and wringing wet with perspiration. The parents explained that they regarded these symptoms as expected effects of the injections and therefore did not summon medical aid until 5.30 a.m., when DM appeared to be dead and GM gravely ill. The twins were born at 8 months gestation, DM weighing 2 pounds 8 ounces and GM 5 pounds 4 ounces. The former placed in an incubator and developed normally. Both continued in good health. At six months, they were vaccinated against smallpox. The mother had been inoculated against diphtheria as a child, but did not receive any injections during pregnancy. The father received a medical discharge from the army for being allergic. Authors continue that in view of the high mortality that accompanies both diphtheria and pertussis during infancy, it is hoped that the publication of a report of these two fatalities will not deter the profession from continuing to practice immunization. It will be recalled that the family history was positive for allergy. And such would be a theme for all the future research, that the benefits of vaccination would always outweigh the risks, even if the risks were death. One thing that does spark my curiosity though, he writes about a paper by Waldbot reported three cases of allergic shock in which the acute symptoms were followed by signs of bronchopneumonia. Early SIDS cases were, many of them were diagnosed as bronchopneumonia when, when we didn't have the name SIDS. We didn't have the classification until the 1970s. Here is the abstract by Waldbot, a 1934 paper. Reference has been made recently in the literature to instances of sudden death which were thought to be due to physical allergy, particularly to sensitization to cold. Few, if any, reports of allergic deaths induced by the antigenic substances which are commonly encountered in allergic diseases can be found, except deaths which followed parenteral injections of pollen and serum. Remember that seven-year-old boy who died 20 minutes after subcutaneous injection? This is a pattern that kept repeating. In 1961, the death of an infant in hyperthermia after vaccination describes a three-month-old baby girl whose temperature rose to 108 degrees Fahrenheit the morning after being given a smallpox vaccine on the upper arm. One of the most unsettling findings in researching sudden infant death is the story of Mark Addison Rowe. In 1958, Jed and Louise Rowe's six-month-old son, Mark Addison Rowe, would be found dead in his crib just two weeks after his doctor gave him a routine injection for diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough, as well as his first polio shot. The autopsy came back with acute bronchial pneumonia, even though Mark showed no signs of illness. His parents soon formed the Mark Addison Rowe Foundation, which was later renamed the SIDS Foundation. This is one reason why I find his story so ironic is that this, this family defied all the risk factors. They were well-to-do, they were older, they were white, and their child died two weeks after vaccinations. And that is the only anomaly in his case history. And this family started what would eventually be the SIDS Foundation. And it's families like this that really brought SIDS to the national attention. And yet their case histories include recent vaccination. But that detail would be brushed under the rug over and over again. Because the benefit outweighs the risk, even if the risk is death. 
Cot death became sudden infant death syndrome in 1969. Throughout the decade, more and more deaths would be attributed to SIDS, which updated its definition in 1991 to include a thorough death scene investigation and reenactment. After that, we see a decline in SIDS diagnoses and an increase in accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed and unknown or undetermined. SIDS may turn out to be one of the biggest cover-ups of all time, especially considering that infants and children die shortly after vaccination all around the world. But that is another episode. The whole thing that inspired me to write this article, because this started just as a simple article, was an exploration of epidemics caused by needle reuse. I'm going to list some of the epidemics that were caused or may have been caused by needle reuse. I plan to go into more detail in subsequent episodes, but this is a short selection of epidemics. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was preceded by an experimental bacterial meningitis vaccine cultured in horses by the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research in New York. This vaccine, along with many others, was injected into soldiers at Fort Riley in Kansas, right where the first cases of the Spanish flu emerged. What was coined the Spanish flu at the time then traveled with the military around the world. Just a few years before this, there was another experiment going on at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, and it involved polio. The 1916 polio outbreak that started in Brooklyn, New York was just a few subway stops from the Rockefeller Institute where Simon Flexner had been passaging spinal cord tissue containing polio virus between rhesus monkey spinal cord to another. It would later be hypothesized by H.V. Wyatt in his research paper, the 1916 New York City epidemic of poliomyelitis. Where did the virus come from? It would be postulated that the virus escaped from the Rockefeller Institute and that it was a more virulent strain because of these experiments. It is considered an extraordinary epidemic because the features they were never experienced again. Some of these features include that the number of children aged two years affected was the highest ever recorded. The case fatality rate of 25% was the highest ever recorded. The epidemic started in early May, well before normal summer polio season. The author writes, the epidemic is unique in having such a pronounced focus, extraordinary infectivity, and very high incidence in fatality rates. The virus must have mutated to an extent never seen before or since. It was as though a new virus had suddenly been dropped at the focus. The 1916 virus was so different that several mutations would have been required and each in turn selected, although no prior cases of paralysis were discovered. When in the 1940s and 1950s, cases of paralytic polio began increasing in numbers, studies found that in the US and Australia, children who experienced paralytic polio were more likely to have had a recent injection of DPT vaccine or a penicillin injection within the last 30 days than controls. It even has a name, provocation polio. Children were more likely to have paralysis in the same limb that they were injected in. They subsequently halted vaccinations for a period of time in certain areas. But it wouldn't be the last time that polio was connected to recent injections or recent vaccinations. Where there's a polio outbreak, there's a vaccination campaign. During a large outbreak in Oman in the 1990s, 
children with paralytic poliomyelitis were twice as likely to have received a DPT injection within the last 30 days. And we have the same thing happening in India and pretty much every developed country that uses these vaccines. In the research paper, Outbreak of Poliomyelitis Due to Type 3 Poliovirus, Northern India, 1999-2000, Injections a Major Contributing Factor, found that the only significant risk factor for paralytic illness was having received any injection in the 30 days before onset. The study concludes that injections administered during the poliovirus incubation period can provoke paralytic poliomyelitis. Injections in polioendemic countries should only be indicated when other therapeutic options have failed or are not available. Researchers have traced the origins of the hepatitis C epidemic in North America from 1940s to 1965, with a peak in transmission rates in 1950, when the oldest baby boomers were only five years old. Researchers believe transmission and rapid expansion of hepatitis C virus infection was caused by the reuse of glass and metal syringes. In southern Italy, a hepatitis C outbreak was found to be caused by the multiple use of unsafe glass syringes of the Salk vaccine between 1956 and 1965. The article writes, persons born between the 1940s and early 1960s have a nearly threefold increased risk of hepatitis C infection than the younger age group. The findings are consistent with a cohort effect of exposure to the Salk parenteral vaccination. In Egypt, a campaign against the parasite illness schistosomiasis conducted from the 1950s to the 1980s has resulted in about 15 to 20 percent of the 63.3 million Egyptians to have antibodies to hepatitis C, meaning that they have been infected by the virus that was transmitted by reused syringes. It is believed by many that the AIDS epidemic was caused completely by reused syringes used in the 1940s and 50s in polio vaccine experiments in Africa. The world's first known case of AIDS has been traced to a sample of blood plasma from a man who died in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1959. An early polio vaccine, the Koprowski vaccine, was tested on 1 million people in Belgian territories in Africa including the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, including 76,000 children under the age of five in the Belgian Congo from 1958 to 1960. We may never really have the whole story about what happened, but I, like so many of you, believe we should have a choice when it comes to our health and our body. It's good to remember that every generation is sometimes, somehow, failed by the next generation's science. Truly, we are science experiments. <laughs>